Thanks, Steve. I forgot Jonathan wasn't praying this morning, so I'm not ready up here yet. (laughs) That's like the quintessential joke. I'm sorry, Jonathan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, It's so good to see so many of you this morning. Uh, Thanks for being here. We are this fall coming to the end, actually, of a series we've been doing on the life of King David, who's one of the more prominent figures in the Old Testament, out of the books of First and Second Samuel. This morning we're going to spend the third week uh, on this, this event in David's life where David, this man after God's own heart, so-called by the writer of scriptures both in the Old and New Testament, uh, commits a grievous sin. He commits adultery with a woman that he uh, lusts after, and then in the, the byproduct of that is that he plots the murder of one of his best friends who's her husband, and then begins to just, corruption begins to pop up everywhere in his rule, and then the fallout of what happens after this event. So two weeks ago, we looked at the event itself. Last week, we looked at Psalm 51, which was David's prayer of repentance in light of what happened. Today, we're going to look at at the fact that just because God has forgiven him and he has reconciled David to himself and ultimately will do so through the death of Jesus, David's son on the cross, so many thousand years later, that that's not the end of the story. There's still consequences that David has to work through because of his poor choices uh, and that we have to work through in our lives because of, a lot of times, uh, mistakes that we've made, ways that we've sinned against God, and then having to live with the reality of the consequences of our sins, but ultimately to live with the reality of the consequences of sin in general. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, we're going to be again in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't, that's okay, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder, and in the insert there, it'll also be on the screen behind me. We're going to read these verses in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 13 through 25. And then we're going to go to another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 39, and read just to get a glimpse into how David deals with his suffering and his pain uh, in in light of some of these events. So let's read together, okay, if you do that. 2 Samuel 12, 13, beginning there. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan's the prophet. He's come to, um, to confront David about this sinning with Bathsheba. David's response, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sins. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead, he may do himself some harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? 
whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means the Lord loves and delights in you. Now listen to David singing this psalm in Psalm 39. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is to you, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is God's word. Now, I want to talk this morning about what it is to live with consequences like the consequences that David had to live with. And I don't want to take anything lightly because I know there may be, I, know, I have friends who've lost children in infancy. I mean, I, there, there is real suffering and real pain and real just devastation that, that many of us in this room are dealing with. And I don't want to take, I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to, to I don't want to preach this morning in such a way that it, it seems to say it's illegitimate to be angry or upset or whatever it might be about those things. But I do want to talk to us about how we deal with the kinds of events that David has to deal with here. And we're just going to use the word suffering to kind of wrap all of that up. And so three things about that then. Uh, and it's just this. I want to see, I think this passage teaches, first, the reality of suffering. And secondly, the necessity of it. And then thirdly, how to persevere through it. And those are just the three points of the sermon. And so we'll follow along the three points of the outline on the back of the page that I just that you, that you have there are just those things. The reality of it, the necessity of it, and then how we can find the grace and the strength to persevere through it. Those three things, okay, this morning. So you filter this through whatever it is, whatever way your heart may be breaking or whatever circumstances you're facing that are just may seem overwhelming to you. And let's talk about these things together this morning, okay? First, the reality of pain and suffering. There are, and this is just a principle, there are real and inevitable consequences to any sin. Romans 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 12 says it this way. Paul says, he says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because of sin. So there's this spiritual truth in the scripture that I think we need to know and kind of make sense of. And it's just this, that sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. The sinning of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden led to death. There was no death prior to sin. So sin always brings death. And that's literally true in this story. Look at verse 14. What does Nathan say? David, you sinned, but you will not die. However, the child will. So David's sin leads to death. Not his, but his child's. But when Romans 5 says sin came into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden... And the result was that death came. Paul, in the Bible in general, means a whole lot more than just physical death. It means something broader in the sense of brokenness or ruin or misery or whatever word you might choose to use to describe the theological concept that's trying to you know, be played out in the Scripture in these things. Sin 
destroys things. That's the point. If you violate God's design, if I, if, if, if we refuse to live in submission to him and choose instead to do things our own way, the result will be every time, always, without exception, ruin. Disaster. And one of the things I say to all the people I marry uh, is the first meeting we have together, I say something like this. I say, God invented marriage, and that means that if you're going to get married, you enter into marriage whether you want to or not under God's authority. Here's what I mean by that. God invented marriage, and he knows how it works, and if you don't follow his advice and his design for marriage, there will be a breakdown. It will be inevitable, right? It's like putting water in a gas tank of a car and trying to drive it. It doesn't work. A car is designed to run on gas, not water. And if you try to run it on water instead of gas, it will break down. And that's the scripture's teaching about sin. Sin causes breakdown. It brings death. Literally in this case. But in all other kinds of cases, our lives are filled with ruin and destruction because of sin. We live in a world ravaged by sin. A fallen world is the way the theologians try to get at the concept. A fallen world. And if you want one evidence, I was thinking about this this week and did some Google research There are, in various parts of the planet, carnivorous plants. That's backwards. You with me? Okay, just in case, the carnivorous plants are plants that eat animals. Right? Are you with me? Animals were designed to eat plants. Plants were not designed to eat animals. I mean, so something about even the way the fall is reaching out into the curse that's happening In the ground, we now have man-eating plants to deal with. Not not like the little shop of horror, like, you know, the thing. Don't think that, right? But, I mean, African jungles or, you know, rainforests. I mean, it's just one little indication of, of, you know, of how utterly backwards and screwed up the world we live in is. That the world is no longer the paradise that God created it to be. It's been ruined in every facet by sin. And so the Bible, in stories like this one and in every, you know, every other story, and even more explicitly in other places, is very honest about what we should expect out of life. We should expect fall to the floor suffering. I mean, David's so overwhelmed that he literally stops eating. He falls down on the ground. It's a posture of humility and prayer, and he's fasting. He's crying out to God. And, and what the Scripture would say is that, it, you know, it won't, if you've not experienced it yet, it won't be very long, but at some point you're going to experience this kind of fall-on-the-floor suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And unfortunately, there's no escaping it. And so, you know, it may be the loss of a baby like this. It may be having to mourn the death of a loved one. It may be a rejection from somebody who meant the world to you. It may be a vocational, you know, dream being crushed. I don't know what it is. I can't possibly know what it is all of us are going through, but I can promise you that if you're feeling that, you're not alone. Every single person in this room, whether they've experienced it already, whether they're currently in the middle of it, or whether they're headed towards it, is going to have to get through some event of fall-on-the-floor suffering. So how do you get back up? And that's what we learn from this passage. You see, you not only learn the expectation that the Scripture would give to us, that, that life is full because we live in a fallen world where sin is still holding sway over our lives, we should expect this, but how do you get back up? And the way you get back up is to see not only, not only the reality of suffering, but the necessity of it. So that's the second thing I want to talk about. And so 
I believe this passage teaches us how God uses suffering for our good and how then we would suffer well. And there are a couple things David learns that help him get back up. And the first is just this. The first thing he learns is what suffering is not. And David learns a very important principle, and it is that God is not punishing him. Suffering is not punishment. Look at verses 13 and 14. David confesses the truth. I've sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan says, the Lord's put away your sins. And that means God's forgiven David. It literally means he no longer sees David's sins legally. At the end of Micah, which we're reading in the CBR community Bible reading this week, the prophet Micah says, who is a God like you? This is of the God of the Bible. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression, you cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. In other words, God says, your sins are gone forever. I don't remember them anymore. If you put your faith in Jesus, God literally says, I don't hold you legally liable for your sin in any way. And the result of that is the psalmist can sing. In Psalm 103, we looked at this a few weeks ago. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Do you hear that? God does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. God doesn't bring suffering or pain heartbreak into our lives to pay us back for our sins. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But he comes to David and he says, David, you're forgiven. I love and accept you, but you're going to suffer. And the suffering is not punishment, but sin always brings suffering. (laughs) You hear that? Suffering is not punishment, but sin always brings suffering. It brings real and inevitable consequences that are at times... Absolutely horrific. And what I hate about the Bible, and that sounds sacrilegious, so hang with me, but what, I, what is uncomfortable for me about it is the Bible doesn't try to soften the blow one bit. I mean, if you read the Scripture, the Scripture just says, that's just the way it is. Suffering is not punishment, but we will never fully escape it. There are consequences, but the hard thing is that there's not always a direct connection between a particular act of sin and a particular set of circumstances. In other words, even in talking about this, we've got to be careful that it's true that there are real and inevitable consequences to every sin, but it's not always a one-to-one correspondence. In other words, this suffering is not necessarily a consequence of that sin. Or we can't say, you know, this set of circumstances is obviously, you know, a consequence of that person's sin. The disciples tried to do that in John chapter 9 with the man born blind at the gate of the city. And they said, they looked at him and they said, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. It's more complicated than that. It's bigger, and, and, and we do this all the time. It ranges from the absurd to just kind of the everyday, the absurd being whoever it is that claims that hurricanes that come through, you know, a hurricane came through Orlando and it's a consequence for Disney's stance on homosexuality. Really? Wow. You know, or, or the classic one is AIDS is God's divine retribution for homosexuality. That's nonsense. I mean, you, there's not a one-on-one, you, you, you know... And we do it, in the, and the disciples were saying, here's a guy, and he's blind, so he must have sinned, or his you know, parents said, no, Jesus says, no. No, we're not going to play that game. You're not allowed to do that with this. There are direct and irreversible and unavoidable consequences to sin, but it's not always a one-to-one correspondence. So you've got to be really careful. Uh, it, it, the assumption of Job's friend in the Bible, if you've read the story of Job in the Bible, and the whole book of Job is really meant to kind of go at this, but the assumption of Job's friend uh, friends, as they come to Job, who the story of Job is he's uh, the most righteous man on the earth, and then Satan comes to God and says, if you take away his stuff, he'll curse you instead of serve you. And so 
God allows Satan to take away his, all of his children die. He loses everything. He just goes into this unbelievable time of suffering. And he has these friends. And it's the old saying, with friends like that, who needs enemies? He has these friends that come and they begin to talk to him. And basically they're calling him to repentance because here's what they believe. Here's their assumption is that you're suffering, Job, because you've done something wrong. So their working ideology was something like this. Good people have good lives and bad people have bad lives. And so if you're having a good life, then you can assume you're living right. And if you're having a hard time, then God must be punishing you. And the entire book of Job is meant to just absolutely demolish that idea. It's never that simple. There are never clear-cut answers to all of our questions about why. Why this? I mean, sometimes we have no way of knowing what God is doing in our lives. But whatever the reasons might be for the heartache we experience, the one thing we can be sure of is that he isn't punishing us. Suffering isn't punishment. There are inevitable consequences, but even those aren't, you know, one-to-one correspondence. You might do everything right as a parent. Your kids still turn out, you know, in a way you wish they wouldn't. Or you might do everything wrong and your kids turn out just fine. And so the first thing David has to learn is, and what we need to learn, is in order to handle suffering, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, in order to get back up off the floor, when you get down there, you have to know that suffering is not punishment. Because if you don't know that, here's the two things. One of two things is going to happen to you. If you're, not, if you're not sure about this point, then you're going to end up in one of two different emotional realities. Either you will hate yourself or you will begin to hate God. One of those two. Because either you'll look at your life and you'll say, because you'll be operating in the same kind of system, the, the legalistic, moralistic system that Job's friends were, and you'll, say, you'll look at your life and you'll say, you know, I really do deserve to suffer like this because I've been bad, I've sinned, I've failed, I've, I hate myself. And you'll, begin, you'll just fall apart and begin to be depressed. I deserve this. God's right to do this to me. I'd punish me too if I had a chance. Or you'll, you'll look into your life and you'll conclude, you know, I've been pretty good, and therefore God is wrong to do this to me, and you'll start to hate him. You'll be mad at him. So either way, you'll be full of self-loathing or self-pity, or in, in either way, you'll be crippled for the rest of your life. You'll never get back up off the floor like David did. So you've got to know that suffering is good people don't have good lives and bad people have bad lives. A lot of times bad people have great lives and good people have horrible lives. Look at Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. But the one thing, no matter what, not, we don't always know what God's doing, but the one thing we can be sure he's not doing, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be sure that he's not punishing you. But the second thing, okay, if suffering's not punishment, then what is it? And the second thing David learns is then, is suffering's not punishment, suffering is surgery. See, David has a problem. He's sick. And we're told what the sickness is in verse 14, up there at the top again. Nathan says to him, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. And that word scorned is the antithesis of what the Bible means when it talks about the glory of God. This, this concept of the glory of God means weightiness or the heaviness of God's reality. And so when Dathan says, you've scorned the Lord, he says, David, you've taken the Lord lightly. God's not your reality. He's only an ab- abstraction to you. He's not real. You're not dealing with him in your heart. And this is an amazingly, I think, accurate portrayal of where David is spiritually. David's believing in God, but he's ignoring his commands. So the wisdom and the power and the love of God for him, the holiness of God... These things are just theoretical concepts. They're abstractions out there that really aren't having any impact on the way David's living his life and making decisions. They aren't spiritual reality in his heart. God's not the most important thing to him anymore. He's not at the center of his heart 
anymore. And the problem is, is that if God is not the most weighty reality, if he's not the most important thing, if he's in your heart, if you're not worshiping him supremely, then that doesn't mean you're not worshiping. It means you're worshiping something else beside him. There's something else that's come into your heart and become your all-consuming passion. Something else has become the source of joy and significance to him. And for David, it was his power and his position as the king. And I really think the sex was really about power, too, in the story. I mean, David was just drunk. He was in love with the idea of his power. And when that happens, when, when, when that kind of thing happens in a life, when you make something other than God the weightiest, most important thing in your life, then that thing will become the thing you can't live without, and the result will be that you will become a slave to it, like David did. It will become your emotional center, and it will produce all kinds of unhealthy and a lot of times uncontrollable and absolutely destructive emotional realities in your life. You'll experience fear if something threatens it. Fear so much so that when, you're, when, when your kingdom is threatened, you will kill your best friend, like he did. You'll You'll feel rage if something blocks it. You'll feel despair if you lose it. I mean, you'll kill for it, whatever it is. I mean, David, if you look at the story, he's absolutely out of control. I mean, think about this. Here's a man who has been given everything by God, and yet he's willing to risk ruining his life and throwing away his kingdom for one night in bed with a beautiful woman. Now, what kind of man does that? A man who's spiritually sick. And the solution is suffering. God is doing surgery on David's heart. Uh, there's a similar story earlier in the Old Testament where a man named Abraham uh, wants a son more than anything else, and God promises him one, and yet he has to wait nearly 25 years for the son of God's promise to come. And when he comes, he puts his affection upon this young boy in such a way that he becomes his all-consuming passion. And so God has to come to him at some point in the story and he, would, he has to say to Abraham, Abraham, the son that you love so much, he has to die. Because the only way for redemption to go forward is for him to die. And it put Abraham on the ground, and he, and he wrestled, and he wrestled. And if you know the story, you know that eventually he was able to obey God's command. And he literally had his son tied to, you know, sticks and was raising the knife to slay him uh, when God spoke. But it was, it was only when he dethroned Isaac from the center of his heart and made God the center, when he proved that he would serve God and not serve his pseudo-God, this son that he loved so much, then God said, you can have him back. Because now, see, something had happened in Abraham's life. Now, because of this event, he could enjoy that boy and not ruin everything. He was free. He wasn't a slave to him anymore. And that's what God's doing with David. He's performing surgery. And it works. Robert Alter, who wrote a commentary on First and Second Samuel, says that if you pay careful attention to the narrative, here's what he says. He says, you'll see that, that, that as David's power has increased, what's happened is this man after God's own heart has been corrupted. He's become a user of people. Bathsheba's an object. You know, he has every right to her if he desires her. He's the king. Joab is an instrument. He can send him and command him to do whatever he wants to do, and he has no choice but to obey King David, David has become, become drunk with power, and he's forgotten his place, and then God strikes his son, and he falls down on the ground. And look at verses 22 and 23. When they ask him why it is that he's gotten back up after the, son, the child has died, he said, when the child was still alive, I wept. I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows 
whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And for the first time in a long time, David is faced with the reality that even though he is the most powerful person in the kingdom, he is really powerless. And David Alter puts it this way. He says, David speaks out of his existential nakedness. In the place of David, the seeker and wielder of power, we now see a vulnerable David. And this is how he will chiefly appear throughout the last half of the story. Now, existential nakedness, I mean, that's big, those are big words. I mean, what does he mean? He means that David, for the first time in a long time, has a sense of his smallness. He's small in his own eyes. He's vulnerable. He, he, can I bring him back again? I mean, he, he knows. He knows he's absolutely powerless. For all of his power and all of his money and all of his influence, he can't arrange for the life he wants. There's no amount of problem solving in the world that will, that will lead to a solution in this case. He is just before God with nothing to clothe himself. And he's learned the lesson. And the lesson's just this. David, your power and your throne, the adulation of other people, your influence and your wealth, those things can't save you. They can't fill your heart up with happiness and joy and significance. Only I can do that. And if you keep looking to something else, you become a slave. You'll serve it and it will be a hard master, but I'm not. Now, there's a principle, I think, here that we have to wrap our head around. And it's just this, that there is a tight link between your wisdom, your character, your ability to endure, even your joy, and the reality of how much you suffer. (laughs) Suffering in the Bible is God's chosen method of getting character into us. There are a couple passages I just want to read to you that are completely shocking to me. First two in Hebrews, chapter 2 and then chapter 5. Now, let's just listen to this for once. This is just absolutely unbelievable. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, For it was fitting that God should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. And again, Hebrews 5, 9. Although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Time out. Stop. What? Jesus learned obedience through suffering. How did God bring Jesus, the eternal Son of God, into the perfection of his obedience to his heavenly Father? Through suffering. I mean, that's a reality we can't get out from underneath. And I hate, I hate to break it to you, but if Jesus had to suffer in order to learn to be obedient, guess what? It's going to be unavoidable for us too. And so Romans 5.3, Paul says, "Rejoice! We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And then James 1.2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness must have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Rejoice! Consider pure joy! And I know, I mean, I know, believe me, I know that you just want, some of you in the room want to say, that's absolute rubbish. That is ridiculous. That's a dumb thing. I mean, this is why I don't like Christianity, because God does these kinds of things to people. But here's my prayer this morning. We were praying. I was praying with a friend this morning, just this morning, who has had a really tough time. And one of the things I've been trying to just, as a friend, lovingly say is, God's not giving up on you. Keep going. Don't quit on him. Don't, don't, you know, don't stop. God's doing something. He's working. And 
my friend has had this radical reversal of events in the last couple of weeks. And so he was praying this morning. He was just saying, I thank you, God, you know, because he's, he's just thinking about this job that he's got now that's really great. And God's just moving in all different areas of his life. And he said, you know, I, God, you're, you're so real and so much a part of my life. I'm just so overwhelmed. And he got done praying, and I thought, man, wouldn't it be great if we could pray that prayer, not just in the good times, but in the depths of our suffering? God, it hurts. And I, and I am overwhelmed, and I, I'm, I'm angry, and I just can't take this any longer. But even in the midst of this, I believe that you are real and that you're a huge part of my life and that you're doing good to me. See, those kinds of prayers would change the world. And, and what's amazing is, is in Psalm 39, we get, we get an insight into how David dealt with these things. Because the third thing I think we learn here from David that can get us back up off the floor is you can learn how to do suffering well. And for that, you have to look at Psalm 39. And in Psalm 39, when we read it, let's just read it again if you look down there because it's so, it is so powerful. Here's David in the midst of pain and heartbreak crying out to God. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume him like a moth. Uh, You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. I mean, did you notice there's no happy ending? I mean, David doesn't wrap the prayer up with, with a perfectly placed, yet not my will but yours be done. It's amazing. He complains about his circumstances and then he ends the prayer. If you look down there at the last line, literally the prayer ends with basically, God, leave me alone. Just get out of my life. You're ruining my life. Turn your face away from me. Just please. Stop dealing with me. Get away from me. Complete, I mean, absolute complete emotional honesty. And when you read the Psalms of David, he doesn't say the right things. It's, it's really amazing. He doesn't feel the right things. He just feels and then he says what he feels. I mean, David doesn't quote, you know, he doesn't put his preacher voice on and quote Romans eight twenty eight. Well, you know, all things work together for good to those who love. With pious resignation. He doesn't say, I'm just praising the Lord. He says, this stinks, and I'm angry. I mean, he's, he's emotionally real. He doesn't feel the right things. He doesn't say, he just feels, and then he says what he feels, but, but, but he never stops praying. He doesn't turn away from God. I mean, what Jesus warns in, in one of his parables is that hard circumstances would be the cause of many people who before claimed to be Christians give up their faith. And if when you suffer, you turn away from God in anger, that's arrogant because what you're saying is, is I don't deserve this. I don't see any reason for this. And because I don't see any reason for this, and there can't be a reason for it. But you see, this is how you do suffering well. You have to be emotionally completely honest. I'm giving you, I'm giving you permission, as much as I'm able to, to whine and complain and get mad at God all you want but keep talking to him. Keep wrestling with him. Don't turn away from him. Be emotionally honest and real, but persevere. See, that's how you do it well. But how do you do that? (laughs) I mean, where do you find the courage and the faith to suffer well like that, to be emotionally honest in it and to endure through it? Because that's what it takes. It takes faith 
And so the only way we can be free to be emotionally honest is to know, right, just to say, not to, not to feel like we have to feel the right things. You know, somebody you love dies, and you've got to go to the service, and you've got to say the right things, and you've got to feel the right things, and you can't act sad because then you have little. No, no, how do you find the faith to really just feel what you feel and say what you feel and be emotionally honest? The only way you can do that is to know that God loves and accepts you just as you are. You don't have to dress up to come to him. That you don't have to invoke pious language in order to please him. That you can just feel him and say what you feel because he can handle it. He's a big boy. And it's how he wants you to come to him because he loves you. You've got to know that. And the only way to persevere through the suffering and not give up on him is to keep praying. And to keep praying, you have to be totally convinced in your heart that no matter how hard it hurts, no matter how long you've had to endure, no matter what it is, God is doing you good. It may be painful, but he's performing life-saving surgery on you. You have to know that. And so how can you know it's true? And there are two assurances, and then I'm done. And I need to be done from this passage, okay? And the first assurance God gives David that this is true is found in, you know, he gives it to David and us. It's found in David's confidence that though his child has died, he will see him again one day. And here's how he says it in verse 23. He says to his servants, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, please don't make this a proof text for the doctrine of the age of accountability or whatever it is, some... You know, this is not meant to be a whole, talk a whole lot about, you know, eternity and what we can expect there and how all that's going to work. This is, in this day and time, this was David's way of saying this one thing. I'm not sure about a lot of that stuff, but this one thing I'm sure of. I know God has forgiven me and he's accepted me and one day I'm going to live with him forever and I'll see my son again there. And we'll both be there forever with him. And so... There's this amazing promise. Whatever God has spoken to David while he's been laying there on the ground, he's spoken this good word over David that David is sure that he's going to go be with God forever. And here's the thing. You and I have a better word than David had. And we have a greater promise than David had. Tim Keller, who is a pastor in our denomination, puts it this way when he preached on this text. He said, when God comes to David and to Abraham, and he says, the only way I'll, I'll get you back The only way redemption can go forward is unless your son dies. That's the only way to get you back. That's terrible, he says. But unlike any other religion, the God of the Bible does not ask us to do anything he hasn't done himself. Because only the God of the Bible has said to himself, if my redemption is to go forward in the world, my son has to die. That's the only way I'm going to get them back. And in reading through the Gospel of John this past couple weeks in community Bible reading, we've read places like John chapter 3 where we read, This famous verse that everybody knows, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For he did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him he might save the world. And so if you're a Christian, here's what this means. No matter what suffering you're going through or will go through, you can say to yourself things like this. This can't be punishment because all of my punishment fell on Jesus on the cross. Right? God is doing good to me. It has to be that. Because his wrath is gone, but it hurts. But it's necessary, and you'll be able to endure. You can be emotionally honest. You can be even grumpy because you'll already know he loves and accepts you in Christ. And as if that wasn't enough, there's a second thing we see here in this text that can help us rest in God's love for us even while we go through hard times like this. And you find it in verses 24 and 25. And this is just amazing to me. We read there, then David, after all of these things happened, comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet and so he called his name Jedidiah. Now here's what's happening. David, as many 
other wives, probably eight. Lord have mercy on him. Including Bathsheba. He has dozens of other children. Maybe even multiple dozens of other children. But out of all of those wives, and out of all of those children, it is this child born out of this horrible event in David's life about which God says, I love and delight in him. And what's more, it is through this son that God will bring Messiah into the world. I mean, do you understand the implications of that? And I'm praying this is going to sink into our hearts this morning, mine and yours. The implications of that go something like this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've committed adultery, if you're guilty of murder, if you're addicted to pornography or prescription drugs. It doesn't matter if you're a hitman for the mob. In Jesus, you are Jedediah. If your faith is in Jesus, God does not look at the record of your sin and hate you. You're in Christ. But God does not look at the record of all of your good works and love you for them either because you're in Christ. God does not relate to you on the basis of your moral performance at all, good or bad. He does not look at you and see your sins or your good works. He looks at you and sees the perfect righteousness of his son Jesus and he says, I love and delight in you for his sake. And when you come to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. And in those days, a genealogy was something like a resume or a college application. And so when you're writing a genealogy, you would include the things that would get you the job and conveniently leave out the things that might, you know, raise questions. So whatever accomplishments you're proud of, the things that you really are love about, you know, what you've accomplished, you put those things on there. And whatever was a liability, you just kind of left off. And in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says, Boaz, as he's tracing the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now that's scandalous. She's not even called Bathsheba. (laughs) She's Uriah's wife. Now, Translation, Messiah came out of an adulterous, adulterous relationship. It's right there. And so is, by the way, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the non-Israelite, and so many more. So what's the teaching? Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Salvation comes into the world through people who need grace. And so no matter who you are, no matter how badly you might have blown it, no matter how scandalous your sin is, if you come to Jesus, he will make you his pride and joy. Isn't that amazing? Do you know that? Has that sunk into your heart yet? Is it spiritual reality in your heart? If not, then you won't do suffering well. You'll quit when it gets hard. Or you'll grow bitter at God and then bitter at everybody else. Or what I fear the most, you'll just shut down emotionally and you won't feel it all. And if that's you, then I'm going to invite you to come to this table this morning and beg God for the grace to believe in his love for you in Christ until it melts your heart. But if you do know it, or if you're like me, you pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. (laughs) Then I invite you too. Let's come to this table this morning to seek a greater sight of Jesus and a greater faith in him so that our hearts might be melted by his love. So that in the inevitable reality of suffering and heartache and pain in our lives, that we can face it and endure it well so that he might be glorified in us. Can we pray this together then? Let's pray as we come to this table now. Lord Jesus, thank you 
that where you should have written us off. You did not. Instead, you call us Jedediah. That we are the object of your love and affection, not because we've done anything to draw attention to us, but merely because of your grace and mercy. And so as we come now to celebrate this meal together, we ask that you would um, apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts and our lives at the direct point where we need it the most. Where those in this room might be struggling and uh, fearful or angry or just resentful, I pray that as we celebrate this meal together this morning that you would do what I just said, that you would melt their heart. And where we're proud or arrogant or we just are... We are, we're angry about whatever pain we may be going through because we feel like we've performed well enough to deserve better. Would you humble us and would you melt our heart? Either way, as we come and celebrate this meal together this morning, would you use it, as you promised to do, to give us a greater faith in the truth of your love for us? And would it produce fruit in our life that would glorify you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, I, I think it's... Uh quite appropriate that we have been discussing the issue of suffering, uh, because what we have before us is a table of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a direct result of his suffering. Uh, Drew alluded to the writer of Hebrews, who said this, uh, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood. Uh, through death, excuse me, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so... As you come this morning, if you are a bad sufferer, if you stink at suffering, if you are mad about the suffering you are enduring, I think we have had quite a promise, quite an assurance in this sermon. God is doing us good through that. We can be assured of that. Uh, But the beautiful thing about this morning is that we got to hear it verbally through word And now we get to have it through sight. You get to see, you get to taste uh, the assurance that because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help us, he is able to make us good at suffering, uh, but only through this meal. Uh, And so as you come this morning to take of his body broken and his blood shed, uh, come asking him to feed you to enable you to then return not just to your seat, but out these doors into a world that's full of suffering, into many situations that you find yourself in where you are suffering, uh, but also opportunities you have to witness to the good God is doing to you through your suffering to those around you who often respond in the ways that Drew just described to us. Uh, And so it is a promise that we have. It is a visual promise graphic illustration of good suffering. And ultimately, Jesus would face suffering head on, whereas you and I, let's be honest, try to avoid it all the time, in every way. 
and yet he was faithful and courageous to face it head on. Uh, Before you do come, I want to give two warnings. First is, uh, this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his body broken and his blood shed. And if your faith and your trust, your hope, your heart's affection is not set on him, or at least beginning to be set on him, at least you can say in good conscience that you have placed your faith and your hope and your trust in him. Please don't come. Please remain in your seat and continue to wrestle with him and ask him for grace and faith to believe that what we see up here visually would be true in your heart. Uh, Secondly, this is a table of reconciliation. It's a table of peace. We have peace with God because we've been justified by faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if there's not peace in your life, there are areas where you need to pursue reconciliation. I caution you not to come today. Take care of those things this month and return the 1st of December when we'll be celebrating together again. So those are my my warnings to you. They're not my warnings. They're warnings from the Scriptures. So I'd caution you to take those seriously. Logistically, the way we'll do this is uh, if everyone would come to the middle, we'll have uh, four stations of of servers up here. Uh, Take a piece of bread and one of the cups, return to your seat on the outside, and then when everybody's received, uh, we'll take together uh, the bread and the cup. Um, This is a table of remembering how easy it is for us to forget. And so I want to rehearse with you once again the words uh, of the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. After supper... He took the cup, again in the same fashion after he had given thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples and he said to them, Drink this, all of it, because this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. This is the body of Christ broken in our place and the blood of Christ shed in our place. So as you come, come and eat And drink of him who said, unless you abide in me, you have no part in me. Uh, I'd invite our our servers to come forward. uh, And let me pray as they come. Lord Jesus, we do marvel at your work. We do ask that you would come this morning and feed us. Use your, your body broken and your blood shed to remind us. As we, as we see it, as we taste it, uh, as, we, uh, as we take it in, would you use it uh, to allow us to experience you and build our faith in greater and greater measure that you might be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as you feel led, please. Uh, together, taking the bread, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Taking the cup, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Uh, Let me pray. Lord Jesus, 
We are absolutely bowled over at the fact that we get to taste the sweetness of this cup and the nourishment of this bread, whereas for you it was uh, pure hell. Uh, It was a bitter pill. Uh, And so we ask that you, by your grace, through your Spirit, would continue to build our faith through what we taste and drink here, uh, that we would be a people who move out into this world testifying to your goodness even in the midst of suffering. And may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On Communion Sunday, we take an offering that is meant to be uh, used to help the poor and the needy in our city. This is a tradition that the church has been doing for the 2,000 years it's been the church. So as the men come uh, to do that and take that offering, uh, again, all of the money that we receive goes to working with uh, those who need financial, physical, practical help in our city. As they do, I'm going to give a brief uh, what we call ministry report update. I thought it was a good time to just remind you of the way that we have structured the church and what we're trying to accomplish uh, in uh, the way we structured ourselves. We are very well aware of how hard it is to get to know people on an intimate level in a gathering like this on a Sunday morning. It was the practice of the early church not only to meet in the temple courts to hear the apostles uh, declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to meet in homes uh, around the table to break bread with one another and to live in small, you know, intimate fellowship with one another. And so when we started this church a number of years ago, three years ago, we started not only gathering for corporate worship, but also meeting in what we call community groups. Uh, there are a number of different community groups that meet, a lot of them on the Lord's Day, either right after worship or also maybe in the evening, but others that meet at other times during the week. Uh, and if you're going to, the, the community group structure in our church is the way we do all of our pastoral uh, you know, support and help and training and, and um the way we really care for one another, and we, you know, we believe that, that the gospel creates us to be a people who can really pursue radical, intimate community with one another. And it's through those community groups uh, that we do that. We are currently at a place to where there's a lot of kind of flux, and so it's a great time if you've not yet caught on with a community group to find one to maybe join. Uh, and so we want to encourage you to do that. I'm going to ask if you're a community group leader uh, and you're here, I know this is weird, but would you mind just kind of standing up real quick? If, you're, if you are a community group leader, here are some of our community group leaders, and two, one's right here too, Terry, and then Maddie and Leslie, there you go, good. So find some of them, you can find Jonathan and I, but this is a great time to join a group because there's a lot of kind of coming and going, there's a couple of new groups going to be hopefully starting in the next couple of months, and so we're really excited about all that, but, but we would just implore you for you to, the community group is meant to be your primary church experience at Church of the Redeemer, not necessarily this Sunday morning gathering because there's just so much we can get done here. And that's, what, that's where church really happens. And so for, for you to experience church the way the New Testament talks about it, you need to be in one of those groups. And so let me encourage you to find one of those leaders, to call me, call Jonathan, call the office. We can help you get connected with somebody. But that's an important part of what we hope uh, happens in, in all of your lives. And let me just finish by praying for the community groups and for the leaders. And then Terry's going to lead us in a song as we dismiss. Father, I thank you for these people who have been so faithful for some of them for the last three years to lead uh, community groups for the way that they care for people and love people for the way they shepherd and pastor 
I thank you for those groups, for the way that I know, I know what a blessing they've been for a lot of people. And really, uh, one of the measures that you have told us to take against the suffering we will inevitably experience in this life is to be surrounded by people who are willing to bear our burdens. And so I thank you that those groups are doing that for one another, that they really are bearing one another's burdens, that they're helping one another, that they're providing support and accountability to one another. And I pray for a new influx of people into community groups. I pray for a renewed energy for the leaders and for the groups. I pray for the groups that are about to start, that you would give us wisdom to know uh, what those groups are supposed to look like and who's going to be where and all of those kinds of things. We pray this, Father, that we might be a people who truly do love one another as you've loved us, that we, would, um, that we would love one another in such a way that the city that you've sent us to would, would take notice of our love for one another and they would come to know that the love that you have for the world is real. And we pray these things that you might be glorified in us. Amen. One of my favorite Puritan writers is a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, and he wrote a book called um, uh, The Art of Divine Contentment. And he wrote it at a time when the, the Black Plague was sweeping across England where people were burying children and burying loved ones, and it was just a terrible time. And he wrote this, this pastoral you know, book about how to find contentment in God. And one of the things he says in the book is he says, I'm convinced that all of God's strokes are strokes of love. And the way you know that is because of the meal we just celebrated and the word we just heard. And so even in this benediction, it is the promise that as you go, whatever... Whatever uh, stroke you may be under, what, however hard-pressed you may feel, this raising of my hands over you is a sign of blessing. And I raise my hands over you as a minister of the gospel because God's hands are raised over you to bless you and to care for you because of the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. So receive then the benediction and let this also add to all that you've heard this morning to convince you of the love that God has for you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. David prayed, turn your face away from me. But may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.